And we're really happy to be back. <laughs> I was just pulling into the driveway or the parking lot and realizing it's been almost exactly four years since the Sunday that we had to say goodbye and not goodbye, goodbye, of course, but, you know, like transition into new ministry. Um, and while we're continue to be deeply grateful for what God is doing at Christ Community and that we get to be a part of that, um, uh, doesn't mean we still can't miss this at the same time. So we're, we're really glad to be back with you this morning. Um, especially, you know, been talking about like getting together again and being able just to be together again, be in the same room. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but there's not a Sunday where I don't celebrate that we get to do that, um, that we get to meet here and that we get to be in this building. And I know Valley Hope was in the same boat. You having to watch online and, and, and you know, for a very long season, not be able to gather as the people of God. And indeed, uh, it is. It's just been a hard year and a half. Uh, I mean, and so I'm just going to invite you right now. I, uh, yes, this is the sermon, but you, you, I'm going to let you talk if you want. I know we've already had to respond once, so this is big time. But what is a word that would describe what the last year and a half have been like for you? Chaos. Draining. Year. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. Yeah. Awkward. Awkward. Yeah. Oh man. Loneliness. Mm-hmm. Disconnect. What well, wasn't a party for anybody? I mean, like nobody. No words of like celebration. It was a hard, hard year, hard year and a half. I mean, in some senses, I mean, we're still kind of coming out of the shadow of this. Um, it's a hard, hard year and a half. And I, I know I found that, I mean, talking to people, it's been good to talk to people about how they dealt with it and what they chose to do with it. Because I think everybody deals with this kind of thing very differently. Um, you know, talking to some families at our at Christ Community Church, you know, one of the things that actually did come up that was a bit of a positive was like, well, we, we did get a little more time, right? We got a little bit more time at home and a little bit more space because we weren't quite as busy running around doing all the things we're usually doing. Um, and I, I, I appreciated that as well. But, you know, it's funny for me because, like, I still felt more tired like, I, I, as somebody who just deals with, you know, low-grade depression periodically, um, I was familiar with that, the kind of the apathy, the tired. And I was grateful for the space, but I, and I thought, okay, well, I've got, I'm not quite as busy. I'm going to try to do new things. Maybe I'm going to read more scripture or pray more. And I just was like, I had really, a really hard time just gearing up to any of that. Um, and that's something that we're really having to take seriously, the accumulated trauma of what the last year and a half has really been. Because it's not even just been the pandemic, right? I mean, you know, 2020 was a hard year for politics. It's a hard year on issues on race, issues of, you know, public health and what we think is right and true. And, and are we even, and even within your own family, right? I mean, if you did get to get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas, you just, I just talked to a lot of people that were like, oh, I hope we don't talk about this, you know, or we go into this topic because 
are just already tired, already anxious of dealing with it. I mean, and that's what this kind of accumulated trauma has brought, right? These perpetual states of anxiety or fear or depression. And maybe it's not like, you know, white knuckle, like, oh my goodness, we're about to crash kind of panic or anxiety, but just that constant, a day after day after day, where suddenly sadness becomes the new normal or apathy becomes the new normal, or just low-grade anxious becomes the new normal. And, and sadly, the stats are, are, pro, are saying that this is actually the case. A Nielsen study showed that there was a 54% increase in alcohol intake in 2020. Studies released just last month in June showed that there was a dramatic 50% increase in ER visits for cases of suicide in teenage girls. I, you know, I talked to a number of mental health professionals, just your friends, um, and many of them are saying they are absolutely slammed, and yet they still don't think the worst is yet to come. Like the pandemic's over, right? But why? Why the pervasive cloud? Why the, the you know, the, the the why will the clouds not leave, right? And I don't know about you, but that's, I still feel that. With all the gratitude that, you know, kids are in school and we're seeing and face to face and and we're getting ready to go visit our own family this week and just being grateful that we get to do that this year. I mean, so I've got the gratitude as well, but the, the clouds, what do we do when the clouds won't leave? Or more specifically, what does scripture teach us? What does scripture have to offer us when the clouds don't leave? When What does scripture teach us about how we navigate depression or sadness or or pervasive anxiety that just won't go away. And so that's why we're going to go to Psalm 77 this morning. I invite you to turn into God's Word there. And, and I feel like i got to make the disclaimer, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional, so I'm, and I'm not offering you uh, a silver bullet, right? This, that's not the point. I don't think that's what the Psalms give us. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't offer something. God who is the author of life, God who is the author of, of, of creation and knows what a thriving existence, a flourishing life is meant to look like. He's going to have something to say about how to navigate living in a, in a broken, sin-soaked world. A God who is a redeeming God wants to give us ways to, that lead us toward restored life. And I feel like Psalm 77 offers some insights into that. But before we read God's word, let's, let's pray for help first. Father, we, we bless your name for the welcome that you give to us. That through the blood of Jesus, we come as we are. And for many of us, coming as we are means coming with anxiety, depression, and apathy, uncertainty, anger, chaos. But God, we do come, and we come to you, the author and perfecter of faith, the creator and sustainer of, of all life and existence, and we ask you for your life, the abundant life that only Jesus can give even, even when the clouds won't leave. And Father, I pray that anything that I say that's not of you would be quickly forgotten. Amen. We're going to do it 
the psalm in just some pieces here. But I don't want you to miss what uh, probably most of your Bibles are the tiny little words that come even before the psalm itself starts. That this is a psalm of the choir master, Jedithon, right? You know, one of those names, if you're going to have a child that you might want to put in the uh, list as possible names, right? It's a Bible name. Um, but Jedithon's a worship leader. Jedithon is, is, is a worship leader, uh, a choir master. He is someone who is used to leading other people to the throne of grace, right? To the praise and glory of God. He, he, he's had some training, right? About what worship is all about and what tuning your heart to God is all about. And what we find is he is a worship leader dealing with depression, Let's read the first three verses here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Right in verse one, you've you've got the uh, you got what you're supposed to say, right? Yeah, God listens. God hears everybody. He hears all the time, and He will hear me. and And that's what we go to right away. God tells this is what I'm supposed to believe. God will hear. I will cry, and He will hear. That's what He does. But I really appreciate the honesty that He brings in the next verse here. I seek the Lord, but in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearing. It's like he's reaching for an answer. He's trying to put his hand on something that he can't find. My soul refuses to be comforted. Have you ever been in that place where you just can't turn your brain off? Where it just it goes over in your mind again and again and again. And you're like, I, no, I can't do anything about it. I know I can't. Let me try to think about baseball. And then no matter what, your brain just goes back to the thing. And that's what's happened. I can't, my soul refuses. I'm reaching and looking. I moan. My spirit faints. And he does so when he remembers God. Wait, I thought we just said, yeah, I know God's going to hear me. And yet when I actually think more about him, when I get past the initial, like, yeah, that God I know hears. I know, I, I know that. And yet I moan. When I remember God, when I meditate on him, that's when the ache really comes to the front. So often in the church, it can be easy to, or we tend to, we can feel like, oh, I shouldn't feel that way, right? Oh, if I really trusted God, I shouldn't feel that way, right? I shouldn't have those emotions. I, um, I've told the story before about um, a church I served in Virginia where um, a woman lost her husband of, of over 60 years saints of the church, wonderful couple. And during the visitation, I was, I was with Miss Bonnie, and I just said, you know, Miss Bonnie, I'm so, so sorry. And, she's like, and the first thing she says, well, I know I shouldn't feel bad. He's in a better place. So two things could be true at once here. Yes, he could be enjoying the hope and joy of fellowship with Jesus forever, and she can be deeply, deeply sad. That, that her partner of 60 plus years can be gone. And I said, no, Miss Bonnie, yes, he is in a better place, but you, 
you can feel this way because we've been made to think that emotions are moral things and they're not. Emotions are simply the description of what is happening inside of us. Now, what we do with those emotions definitely have moral implications. No question about that. But the sensation itself, the emotion is simply a barometer of what's taking place in in our souls. And to simply describe, you know what? I'm groaning a lot in my deepest groaning. And yet, circle back to verse 1. Because Jedithan here is making a choice to take his groaning, his moaning, his longing to God. He's choosing to cry out to God. He is showing up before the Lord. I cry out to the Lord. If you look also in your scripture here at the end of verse 3, you've got one of those little selahs, right? And as you know, that's a pause, likely, in the music or in the moment. But more than anything, it's, it's meant, you're meant to stop for a minute and just sit with what is being, has already been shared. And I think there's a, there's a posture here that's good for us. What would it look like for us to be willing to, to not medicate the pain with Netflix or anything else, more alcohol or more habits, and just said, you know what, I'm going to confront this. I'm going to sit with this for a second. And, you know, that may be the hardest first step, just being willing to say, okay, I don't, I don't want to do this, but I'm just going to take a minute to sit and just take stock. How am I really doing pause and sit in the pain and that's what the psalmist does here he he pauses in his groaning and his moaning and his fainting then he move, he steps forward verse 4 you hold my eyelids open i'm so troubled that i cannot speak i consider the days of old The years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So I don't know about you, but I've had that problem this past year and a half that you hold my eyelids open. He can't sleep. He can't sleep. We've got four kids and, you know, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and sometimes the five-year-old and the three-year-old still wake up in the middle of the night and they need something and we get them the water or take them to the potty or whatever they need. But I have found, and this, I'm not making this up, this actually happened to me last night, um, got the kid back in bed and I lay down. And I'm like, really, why am I awake? And, I, and actually, last night I wasn't necessarily processing anything, but I, but in the last year and a half, though, that had happened a lot when I was processing things. You hold my eyelids up. I cannot sleep. I'm so troubled. I can't even speak. I don't even know what to say. I don't know, I don't know how to even put words to what I'm dealing with or what I'm feeling or what I'm struggling with right now. Let me consider the days of old. In other words, he's trying to look back. He's thinking about the happier times, the better days when, when worship was full of life and joy, when the prayers felt like really close fellowship with the Lord and scripture reading was you know, life-giving and you felt invigorated rather than how he's feeling right now where it's like the words just don't even come off the page, where the prayers seem to tumble onto the floor. And yeah, go to church, yes. Recalling those past blessings, I will consider the days of old, the years 
long ago. And, and not only is he recalling that, but the songs, right? The worship leader is remembering the songs that he has sung that have meant so much, the songs that he has led other saints in, in praying and, and praising God in. He's bringing those back to mind, and, and, he's, and he's trying to stir that up again, like uh, just going back. Uh, that's the truth of it. I know. I mean, think about it. I'll sing it again because I know it didn't used to be this way. I recall the, the, the past blessings because, because I know that it's not always been like this. Parents of teenagers, you're probably feeling this, right? I mean, you think, that used to be so cute and sweet. What happened? But we feel that longing too. It didn't used to be this way. It wasn't always like this. Then the psalmist it lets the rubber hit the road. The very end of six and into seven. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And what you're going to find here is he asks six rhetorical questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut up, has he he in anger shut up his compassion? Again, this is where, if you've been been around the the life of faith a while, you you know the right answers. Well, no, of course, God, uh, steadfast love endures forever. I know that. Uh, His promises never end. I know that. But what? But really? Because he, he feels the cognitive dissonance here of knowing that those things are true, and yet the experience of that is so very, very different. Because right now, it sure does not feel like his steadfast love is going to be forever. That his promises aren't materializing right now, it seems. That the grace of God has been withheld. And that God's compassion is not being poured out. Because... I mean, if they were, would, would any of this still be happening? And there's another pause here, right? Because he just sits with these questions, this uncertainty that, that don't, when the rubber meets the road, don't have a clear answer. But I love what he models for us here. And this is, I think, really important. The Bible gives us permission to ask God questions. The Bible grants us, it even gives us the words right here to say, to go to God and say, God, I don't get it. You're supposed to be like this, but right now things are like this, and I don't see where the two are supposed to meet. And in fact, asking God questions like this becomes an act of faith because it assumes two very important things about God. One, that he actually does hear. (laughs) Why ask questions to somebody that's not there in the room? But secondly, that this God is actually big enough to do something about it. That this God actually does have the power and the love and the compassion and the grace to change the circumstances and to make something new happen. But right now in the middle, when the clouds are overhead, it's like, where, where, when, what, where, when is it going to happen, God? When are you going to show up? And I'm wondering for you, are there questions that just haven't had an answer yet? questions that you've been afraid to even say out loud to yourself, much less to the holy Lord of the universe. 
But what might it look like for you to finally ask it? Maybe that's in a journal or maybe that's going with a friend on a walk and just saying, this is, how, this is what I'm really dealing with with the Lord. What, what is that question that you are afraid to name to the Lord? Verse 10, he, he moves on to make a choice. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Notice the, the, it, he, the emphasis here, and this is the psalmist to do this. When they want to really make a point, you know, in, in Hebrew poetry, to make that point, they don't rhyme it like we might. They repeat the idea, and it's repeated four times. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. I will remember. The word remember is found 187 times in the Old Testament, almost always as a command or an exhortation kind of like this. And the Old Testament is is full of it, right? I mean, uh, the God's people are called to remember covenant relationship again and again and again. God, at pivotal moments, will say, don't forget the covenant, right? Don't forget the relationship that we've got. God, when they had settled his people in the promised land, commanded them to remember the faithfulness of the Lord, to rescue them out of Egypt, to see them 40 years through the wilderness, and says, when you're settled in the land and your vines are growing lots of grapes and you've got, um, you know, plenty of food and you're settled in, don't forget. Remember the faithfulness of our God. Remember what he has done because it's him that has brought you here and not the strength of your own hand. And then you get all the festival days, the feast days, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, I mean, so on and so forth. Passover to all for the purpose of remembering. And again, this is not simply to just recall it to your brain. They actually reenact this stuff, right? You think about it, all the pieces of Passover and how you taste the bitter herbs, right? And you eat, you have the lamb and, and, and to remind you of the lamb. I mean, you experience it all over again. It's almost like if you were going to celebrate your graduation from high school, that you wouldn't just pull out the pictures. You would actually reach into the closet, into the back recesses to the clothes that you haven't seen in a decade, and even behind that, and find your gown and your cap. And you put it on, and you put it on, and then you put the, uh, the, the CD player on or the Bluetooth player to, to play Pomp and Circumstance. And you roll up a piece of paper and hold it in your hand, and like, and then you would actually kind of reenact that and, and you'd have your family on the couch clapping as you walk across the kind of invisible stage. Because remembering for them was a reenactment. It's like you, it's not, you need more than your brain. You need to actually re-experience it again. And every single Sunday, Valley Hope gathers around a table to do this in remembrance Not just to recall it to one's mind, but to put your hands on the body of Jesus and to drink in the blood of Christ to remember the hope of the gospel, to remember on a whole different level. 
And that's what the psalmist is choosing to do here, to, to remember on that kind of level, to, to go back over the story of God's faithfulness and to do it again and again and again and again and again. And the word meditate that comes up in the Psalms regularly is one that's is to chew on. In other words, to, to do it again and again and again and again, to show up repeatedly. And in that remembering, he, he then starts to make statements about not what God's going to do, but who God is. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And the children of Jacob and Joseph, they're the ones who grew to the great number in Egypt and yet were enslaved by a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who saw God miraculously rescue them out of prison, deliver them through the Red Sea, establish them as God's people at, the, at Mount Sinai, giving them not only the laws of spiritual life in relationship with God, but even forming them as a civilization in the middle of the wilderness, and then delivering them to their very own home. This is, the, the psalmist is recalibrating himself to the faithfulness of God, and he's doing it by showing up to the story of God again and again and again. I've heard a story about um, somebody who got to do dinner with uh, a nuclear sub-captain. Um, pastor had come to his church and he said, hey, please come, let's go, let's go do dinner on the sub and um, I'll get to show you around a little bit. And, of course, he was asking, so, so how long can you stay down? Like, if, if you're, you know, underwater, how long can you stay down? And he's, and he's like, well, actually we can... We have enough supplies and oxygen and all that to stay down for months. However, we have to come up every 90 days. Because what happens when you're a nuclear sub with ballistic missiles, um, you, you want those missiles to know where they're going if you ever have to launch them. And yet when they're down low, the magnetic field of the planet will adjust their instruments ever so slightly. And just, I mean, just the tiniest bit off on one of those missiles means you could miss your target and hit something you don't want altogether. So what they have to do is they have to surface every 90 days and recalibrate with the stars, with GPS, with whatever it is to make sure all their instruments are all lined up and then they can go back down again. We, we are like that. As people who have dwelled in the darkness and the depths, we have to come to the surface and recalibrate. That's why we gather every Sunday to worship. But what we recalibrate ourselves to is, is, is to God and, and to the God who is a God whose story is of redemption. A God who has worked wonders, who has redeemed, who has been faithful, who has shown up, who has brought people through deep, dark, and gloom in order to bring them home to where they've always been meant to be.
In this last little section, the, the psalmist here offers, I think, a beautiful metaphor of what living life in this in-between is really like. Because the psalmist, by the end of this, the psalmist isn't going to be all better, right? The psalmist isn't going to be, oh, I'm happy now. Woohoo, everything is great. No, that, that's not the point. The point is, how, how do we do life when the clouds won't leave? That, that's what we're getting at. And this is, and he goes on in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, he's talking, he's thinking about the waters of the Red Sea. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. This is the might of God put on display against the the waters. And again, in the Old Testament, the word waters is is more than just literal waters. It's, It's actually also a symbol for chaos. In, in the Genesis account, in the beginning, we, we know how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the next verse says, and the earth was formless and void. And the next verse, then God's face hovered over the waters. In other words, there was a swirling, chaotic nothingness before there was anything. And that God was looking at the chaos. And then, of course, says, and then God says, let there be light. And there was light. And the rest of Genesis 1 is the story of God by the power of mere speech bringing order out of the chaos. Light and dark, day and night, sun, moon and stars, waters, but then now there's land, and then there's birds, and then there's fish, and then there's plants, and then suddenly the pinnacle of all humanity. And then on the seventh day, God rests because, not because he's tired, but because everything is now right exactly where it was always meant to be. Order out of the chaos. And here, God's people confronted with their destruction as the Egyptian army is crushing down upon them. There's no hope for them whatsoever. And the might of God comes in and makes a way through the chaos, through the waters, the literal waters of the Red Sea, but also the, the, the certain destruction that they were facing all because of the might of God. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. For the Israelites, the way to safety wasn't around the Red Sea. They couldn't swim through it uh, or on it, I mean. The way, God's way, was through the sea, even when they couldn't see his footprints. And there's a powerful metaphor in that, isn't there? When the clouds don't want to leave, say, God, that's your way. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, even though I don't, I don't see your foot. I don't see how you're in this. I don't see what you're doing. I don't see where this is going. But that's, that's the way through. It's through the sea. God's leading in this is mysterious. We don't know how you did that, God. We don't know how you parted a whole ocean to get out of the way. But maybe I can trust you even if I don't understand.
last verse. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God is a shepherd. He is a good shepherd who leads his people like a flock. He is a deliverer. And just as he led his flock through the chaos of the sea to the uncertainty of the wilderness and into a new home with green grass and still waters, that God can deliver you. That with him, all pain is temporary. With him, all questions will one day have an answer. Actually have an answer. With him, one day, all the sad things will become untrue. And that's it. The psalmist doesn't give a tidy, oh, isn't things, isn't things wonderful now? You're like, no. All, all I've got are towering walls of water through a dark and sandy and uncertain tunnel. And somehow, some way, God is in this. And, and, but what's left for me to do is to put one foot in front of the other. And so what do we do with this psalm? I, again, I, and I, I'm, I'm grateful for the honesty that this psalm brings because it's, it's not a neat and tidy answer. But, but it, it's a reminder, one, that, that, you know what, feeling depressed while we live in a broken world sometimes is normal. <laughs> that if, if you're someone who deals with that, with depression or anxiety, that feeling that way is normal. When you live in a world as broken as ours, it's going to happen. But what you do in the midst of that does matter. The choices that you make are the thing that really matters. Because, uh, again, if our feelings are simply a barometer of what's going on, well, then what are we going to do with that? Well, we have choices that we have to make that to choose to show up, to choose to cry aloud to God, to choose to meditate on the deeds of our God, to meditate on the character and the strength of our God, to consider if he has saved then, he can save now. To choose to show up because habits form the trajectory of our hearts. The things that we choose to, to focus on, to show up for, will shape where the, the kind of trajectory of where our hearts are going. And again, this is not a magic bullet. This is not like suddenly, you know, you do this 10 times and you're going to be... Uh, you're going to lose this much weight, right? I mean, it's nothing like that whatsoever. It is simply showing up to say, God, I will redirect. I will choose to redirect my mind. Even though my heart is tugging me in all these ways, I will choose to redirect my heart and my mind to the faithfulness of God, to the goodness of God, to what the promises of God that have been proven in the past. And yes, they may be very, very hard to see now, but we can trust will be proven one day. So I invite you to think, what are those things that redirect your heart and mind to God? And I'm not talking about simply reading scripture regularly, that's a piece of it, or praying regularly, that's a piece of it. But what are just some things that lift your, your eyes heavenward? Hiking in the beautiful mountains, getting out outside of your house, Hear, listening to certain music. Or maybe it is like there's a scripture that you've always really wanted to just go deeper in, and maybe it's just memorizing that verse.
But, ex- but examine the habits that you have in the midst of this because probably we've got habits that happen more quickly and easily that really don't help with the problem, that really just sort of medicate it or just take the pain away for a little bit. Let's find the habits that will actually ground us in the, the praiseworthy deeds of God. Finally, I invite you just to consider with all that God has done in the past, and even all that God has done in your own past. And my hunch is you're sitting here this morning because somewhere God has shown up in your life. He has done something that nothing or no one else could have done. That if God was big enough to handle that in the past, he would be big enough to handle today. As we get ready to come to the table here shortly, um, after we get our kids and, and sing together, you know, I want you to think about what we remember when we come to this table. That this is more than just a recollection of Jesus on the cross, although that is powerful and informative and important. But the Bible says that this Jesus that we will put our hands on was tempted in every way and yet without sin. That Jesus himself was beset with depression and hardship. That he himself knows exactly what you're feeling because he has felt them too. Isaiah even called him a man of sorrows, despised and rejected, familiar with pain. Jesus is, yes, fully God who takes away the sins of the world and and who will come again to make all that which was broken new and whole again and let us cling to that deeply. But let's also remember that he's fully human and he knows, he knows what it is like. He knows what you are feeling. He knows how precisely, how hard, how bad it can be because he's been here. He knows Would you please pray with me? Father, again, I praise you for the welcome that is yours, for the welcome that brings us as we are. Not perfect, far far from it. Perhaps barely making it through the door. Perhaps barely clinging to hope or, or maybe without it altogether. In fact, maybe our faith has been really thin this week and we don't even know if this stuff is true anymore. Father, thank you for the welcome that you give to us. Thank you for the welcome you give to our questions. Thank you to the welcome that you give to each and every one of us, no matter how we're feeling. And we do pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would show us the way through the waters, even when we can't see your footprints. Grant us a hope that only you can bring, a hope proven to us in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray.